This story was one he told in public, as I recall. And uh, he wanted people to know that wherever they are and whatever fulfillments they seek in this world, always know there's something beyond the horizon because the fulfillment you're seeking finally is total, absolute, and complete. When you find God, you find that companion who is in all. Meanwhile, you see, there's a lesson in all of this. Meanwhile, the earthly fulfillments that you seek, such as marriage, such as children, such as beautiful home, and so on, these should be seen as doorways to something more. Otherwise, if you... If that becomes your real idol and it stopped there, then there's quite a feeling of betrayal in life. You mean you promised me something and you're giving me this? This isn't what I really wanted. I wanted happiness in those things. I have the things and I don't have the happiness. And so it is that ultimately we must see that in our husband, in our wife, this is a symbol of a love that we should extend to everybody. This is what marriage should be, a doorway or a window through which you see love everywhere. You see, when you can find love in one form, and this is actually a truth too, that you'll never know God's love until you can find perfect human love. This is something else he said. You have to be able to bring those divine teachings down to a human level. Then when you find that perfection, then you begin to see it in everybody. There's a very interesting story in the life of Swami Sivakesha, my Param Guru. There was a young man in his ashram who, although a brahmachari, had a longing for human love. And he fought against it. He didn't know what to do about it. One day his guru said, God will give you a, a, a present today. They were sitting in a train compartment. There was a train next to them, and there, it was just about to pull out when Sri said to the disciple, look through that window. And the young man looked, and he saw a young woman there who was just epitomized for him what he had been seeking in human love. It was such a fulfillment that he felt no more need for human love. And the train left, and she was gone. Was she, she a soulmate? Who knows? There is one very interesting thing, because normally if you believe in soulmates, people tend to look for them on every street corner, and that's pretty silly. But indeed, one interesting comment my guru made one time was that you do need to meet your soulmate and have a certain union on that level before you can merge into God. He said that you, it mustn't be a sexual kind of union. It must be on a spiritual level, but it can even be on another planet. But if you see that person in vision, there, through that, then you become uh, sort of freed in your own unity to enter into that oneness with the infinite. It's a very fascinating mystery, this whole human life. For example, why, what made God bring human life into male and female. What made him create opposites? They're really all one. Are those, is that one going to be in yourself only? Or were you created in yourself, essentially male or female? And even though in one life or another you may have the body of one 
sex or another, depending on qualities that you need to develop. It may be that there is another um, soul there that you need to become one with. Who knows? I've often wondered. But when Sri Yukteswar, when Master was talking about how in the autobiography our two half-souls will merge in the infinite, this is Sri Yukteswar talking to Master. Often, you'll notice if you read the autobiography very carefully, you'll see behind little sentences like that there's a cosmic truth behind it. This may be just that kind of truth, who knows. I'm not posing that as any kind of solution, but to offer that question to you, that ultimately what you want to do through that desire, that normal human desire for union outwardly, what you're really seeking is that complete union inside. Union with your own self, your own lower, your kundalini with your higher self, the um, inner self with the infinite. All of this is a part of the divine play. It's really an absolutely wonderful drama. And in one lifetime, even a master may be married, may not be married. It doesn't matter really. But in this lifetime, my Guruji's life was to be a celibate. And so when he was that, remember in the life of Ramakrishna, how he had such a horror of money that it burned him when he touched it. He didn't want it around him. Somebody, it was put in his mattress, I think, one time, and he felt burning all over. Well, certainly other great masters have touched money, handled money, had to earn money. It didn't matter to them. It's a thought that the master puts in his own mind in order to set an example for others. Another example from Ramakrishna's life is very interesting. How one day he was sitting there, and all of a sudden he got up and ran out of the room just before two men came who were of a very evil temperament. And he was showing um, the importance of not mixing with people whose consciousness is low. He didn't have any fear of that, really. But he, he put that thought in his mind in order to set that example for other people. Avoid like a poison bad company. If, however, and in this world you have to mix with bad companions, then okay, keep the thought of God. But don't forget that the law of magnetism is a very strong law. A weak positive magnet and a strong negative magnet will make two strong negative magnets. This is what my guru taught. You can't just say, well, I want to love God and everybody, and then go out and try to love somebody who's an evil man and can pull you down. Stay away from them. So what the masters show, and in my guru's case, he had to mix with all types. But then he, he was no greater than Ramakrishna, a little less than Ramakrishna. Each one had his own great role to play. But having another role to play, he had to play that role. So when he met these, these criminals, for example, in the street corner in Philadelphia, and they pointed guns at him and demanded that he give them their money, his money. And uh, he said, I give it to you gladly, but I have a treasure you cannot take from me. And they looked at each other and said, what's the matter with this guy? Is he crazy? And then he looked at them with love. And they began to tremble all over. They dropped his money. They said, we, we can't live like this anymore. And they ran off into the night. But he had to meet evil people like that sometimes. 
It's not that he had to run away from them. No, those great masters, they only set examples. But he saw God in them, and so that, that God in them became converted. Remember, don't compare the masters. They play their games. They, it's all a play, but it's all done with the purpose of helping us to become firm in ourselves, to establish the life of monasticism, of renunciation, in the West especially, was no easy task. The West, yes, there are monasteries there where people withdraw, but to have a new kind of monastery, it wasn't an easy thing. There isn't in the Protestant religion any tradition, really. Well, I went to a church school for a while in Connecticut in America that was run by Episcopalian monks. That's the same as the Church of England. And I have to say, they were all such two-dimensional people. There was no life, no spine, no spunk in them. I thought, I don't want to be like these people. They certainly didn't inspire me. There was just no, no enthusiasm there. All sort of righteous because they're outwardly righteous. No. But he was set an example of the strength that it takes to be a real renunciate. And Oh, it was a wonderful inspiration to see that absolute dedication to God, not only in renunciation, but in an uncompromising one time, um, for example, my, uh, my guru, one of my guru's disciples, because my, his guru was pretty strict with him, and uh, this disciple very sort of pityingly said to him, why did Divine Mother treat you like that through him? My guru said, don't you dare scold Divine Mother. He was very firm about some things and very some principles. Be firm in yourself. Be stalwart. Have a straight spine. This was the message behind that particular episode where he was so horrified at seeing himself in a married state where Actually, in fact, most of his own most highly, highly advanced disciples either were or had been married. But the truth is that we must be firm in our commitment to God. God first, God last, God all the time. And then when you live like that, you find that life becomes a wonderful song of joy. If you will sing out with joy, fill the ether with your song. It's, it's, uh, you, you may not have a good voice. I remember when I was a young man, I used to love to go through the streets singing, but uh, not everybody can carry a tune. Um, some people might sing and everybody else says, put a lid on it. But if you will, in your heart, sing with God, chant God's name, you sing chants, like the ones that we sing at the beginning of these programs or the songs that we sing at the end, maybe you'd like to learn them. Because uh, what I've done is sort of try to write music that would be, you might say, painless philosophy. There was a dentist in Los Angeles called Painless Parker. Well, think of it that way, it's painless philosophy. It's sort of yoga or Vedanta philosophy put in words with music to help make it more something you can remember something that you can make your own. And when I first started writing these, it was 
a wonderful discovery to see that it's, it's possible to bring these teachings out in such a way that it's singable. It's not just a pedant, pedantic philosophy. So the song, Sing Out With Joy, was really sort of a paean of joy. It was a part of an oratorio. An oratorio literally means prayer, but in the Western tradition, it usually means a uh, series of songs and choir pieces and so on, all related to the life of Christ or to the spiritual life. And uh, it's in this so in this one it's called Christ Lives is the name of the oratorio, and Christ lives in you. That infinite kusasa chaitanya is alive everywhere. And so this song is written, it comes at the end of the first part. There are two parts in the oratorio in which we sing out with joy because God's love has descended into this world. Sing out with joy. Sing out with love. So this message, sing with us if you can. Joy to you. the mountains, peace gave us the sky, nightly when starlight enfolds us, peace is its lullaby, Strive reconciled. 